As we begin our time of studying God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings that we've already enjoyed in worship. Lord, we thank you for beautiful music, for servants who sing and who pray and who read Scripture. Lord, we thank you for uh, the joy of worshiping together in your house. Lord, we pray that as we come to this time of study, as we come to this time of exhortation, that you would build us up, that we would be encouraged to live as sacrifices of praise uh, among other people, and whether that be fellow believers or people just out in the world. Father, that we might walk in faith and we might walk in uh, commitment to you as we leave this place today. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're back in our study of the book of Romans today. Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 21 as we come to a what's a very interesting passage because uh, Paul has these long theological uh, arguments that he makes from time to time and he'll, you know, like we saw in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and 11, we had to go through the whole chapter to get one point that Paul makes. And then you get to chapter 12 and he gives you these loaded statements that are like three words long that you could do a one sermon on each statement. But he gives that to you in about 10 verses and, and, and it's, each one of them is almost its own topic of conversation and study. Well, we come to such a passage today as we've been moving, as I've explained before, we've moved from the, the theology of the gospel. How is it that we are saved? If salvation is not by uh, good deeds and faithfulness to the law, how is it that we're saved? Well, Paul's worked that out by showing that there's this other way of righteousness, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ, and that that faithfulness should bring about a change in our lives, which he talked about in chapter 6 through 8, that you know it, we will live by the Spirit because we are uh, redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore, because of the power of the Spirit, we don't want to go back to our sinful selves. Uh, but then in chapters 9 through 11, he asks these hard questions about, well, what does that mean about God's promises? If God keeps His promises to those who trust in Him by faith, then what about the people of Israel? Has He kept His promises to them? And so, in those three chapters, He worked all that out. And so he's, he's fleshed out all this detail about the theology of the gospel. And then, as we saw in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which are these beautiful verses that we should all memorize, he says, Therefore, brothers, uh, by the mercies of God, I, I encourage you to commit your bodies as living sacrifices, that we're to live in our daily walk with God, as we seek to live faithfully to Christ and we live by faith in this world, we're to live as though we are sacrifices. And so what he's doing now in the rest of chapter 12 and 13 and 14 is he's working out what a life of sacrifice looks like. What does it look like on a day-to-day -day basis in the everyday life of a Christian? What does it look like to live as a sacrifice for God. And that he started out in answering that in the last time we looked at the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, 
you, the first way that we live as sacrifices is we live as sacrifices with our gifts. So each one of us has been given gifts by God, talents, uh, wisdom, the ability to preach, the ability to teach, the, uh, the, a heart for hospitality or for service or for prayer or faithfulness. All these different gifts that God has given to the people of his church. And the church cannot function as an entity, as a body of believers, without each believer using his gifts and his talents or her gifts and her talents for the glory of God and the good of his fellow member in the church. And so now Paul turns to some more general principles of how we live as sacrifices. And so in the passage that we're going to read today from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, um, Paul is going to give us these really quick, simple commands that deal with how we are to live as sacrifices toward other people, whether that be believers or unbelievers in the world. And so uh, let's read together Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, as we begin today. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, God's word says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in this passage, we're going to look at two principles that Paul gives us for living faithfully as a sacrifice towards others in this world. And those two principles are, one deals with how we live as a sacrifice to our brothers and sisters in Christ, how we live with other believers in the world. But then also, the second principle is, how do we live as a sacrifice towards outsiders, towards people who aren't believers? And so we're going to see that, but as you read this passage, and as you were reading that along with me, you might notice, or you might get the sense, that this is just a bunch of random commands that Paul is giving. They don't have anything to do with each other, and they don't connect together. You know, it's very difficult if you read that together to see any uh, cohesive point that comes out of that. 
But I want to suggest that Paul is giving us in these two principles, the principles for dealing with believers and principles for dealing with outsiders, he gives us the same general guidelines for our affections, our attitudes, and our actions. So we're going to see how we're to live towards other people in our affections, in our attitudes, and in our actions for, each, for both of these groups that I just mentioned. So let's start by considering how we're to live out the gospel with our fellow believers from verses 9 through 13. And Paul begins by, say, by explaining how we're to sacrifice our affections towards other believers in verses 9 and 10. He gives us four commands for dealing with our affections or regarding our affections. So first, he says, let love be genuine. Now, the type of love that Paul is talking about here, the word in Greek is agape. And y'all probably heard plenty about the word agape. If you didn't know, in the Greek, there are actually four different words for the word that we have for love, which is very convenient and it's much better than our English in explaining what we mean by love. So, Because Micah, for example, he loves hot dogs and he loves his mama. And the two are not the same kind of love. Okay? Uh, and we all kind of get that. We, we love our dog, but we love our wife, and hopefully we love our wife differently than we love our dog, right? Um, but the... But the <laughs> bad example. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I heard somebody say something. I don't want to know what it was. But... Um, yeah, that's right. I might have caused more division than unity today by say, using that example. But, the, uh, but we, we have different uh, ways of expressing that love, or we have different ways of loving. And the pinnacle of love is agape love. It is unconditional love. It is love that is not conditioned on the value that someone else has or that that person can bring to you, right? So it's the love that God has for us. So that God loved us with an agape love. He loved us while we were yet sinners. There is nothing that we can bring to God that will make Him love us any more or any less than He already loves us. He does not love us based on some condition that we meet. And Christians are called to love with that same love. We're following our Savior, right? We're living in light of His life and seeking to be conformed to His will. And if we're doing that, then we're called to love as Jesus loves. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, though. Some Christians ain't so easy to love. Some Christians can be downright unlovable. And Paul says, though, that regardless of that, our love is to be genuine. Our unconditional love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is to be genuine, is to be heartfelt, is to be sincere. So we should not love out of obligation. It's lo uh, agape love is not the idea of, well, I guess I have to because Jesus said I have to love you. I guess I have to. And it's not this idea of going along to get along. As in, well, I don't want to cause a ruffle or, or cause any trouble by... by disagreeing with my brother or, or, or stopping 
my faithfulness and love towards him, so I'll just go along to get along. It's the idea of loving God first, and as a result of that, we love other people in spite of themselves. Just as God loved us in spite of uh, ourselves, God, we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in spite of themselves. We're to consider the good in them, not the bad. We're to consider what they, how they are valued in Christ, not how we value them as people in our church. Second, Paul directs us to abhor evil and cling to what is good. Now, this is a very vivid contrast that he sets up in this statement. And it really comes through in the Greek words that he uses here. The word abhor means to be horrified by. Okay? So let me ask, does evil horrify you? Are you disgusted to see someone mistreated or to have injustice done to them? Does it make you sick to your stomach to think about the fact that right now in this very hour, there are orphans who do not have a home? Do you well up with anger over the taking of innocent life or the devaluing of marriage or the breakdown of the family? As a stark contrast, though, we're to be horrified by evil, but Paul says we're to cling to what is good. Now this word for cling or to hold fast to what is good, that word literally means to glue to or to stick to. So imagine we're to be repulsed by or driven away from evil, but we're to cling to what is good like we're super glued to it, okay? We're to gravitate to or to stick to the good things in this world and the good things that God commands and we're to Be horrified by what is evil. Third, we are to love one another with brotherly affection. Now, the love that Paul uses here, the word for love that Paul uses here is different than the agape love. It's actually the word Philadelphia. Believe it or not, the city Philadelphia literally means brotherly love. Okay, It's meant to say there's not a lot of brotherly love that goes on there, but but it's meant to uh, foster the idea of loving your brother or sister in Christ. Well, the idea of brotherly love is that we in this church are to have affection for one another. And uh, this church is not a country club. It's not a community organization. It's a family. And the way that we're to view one another is not as members of a club or members of an organization, but as brothers and sisters. That's why I love the Baptist tradition of calling each other brother or sister. We don't do the sister so much, but we, we do the brother. Uh, and that's to foster this idea that we are family members. We are joined together in Christ as a body, as a, a family of believers. The, the relationships we have here should be some of the greatest, the firmest, the most trustworthy relationships that we have. And we aren't supposed to just be acquainted with our fellow church members. We are to love each other like kin. Now that might not be a great example for some of y'all, but we're to love each other with the ideal relationship of a family. The last command regarding affections 
towards other believers is that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I love this statement because the statement there, the idea of honor is to prize someone else as more valuable than yourself, is to value other people more than you do yourselves. And so Paul says, if you're going to be competing with one another over anything, then compete over valuing one another more than you value yourself. If you're going to compete, then compete over that. So next, we find the commands about our attitudes in verses 11 and 12. So here Paul gives four attitudes that we should exhibit as believers. So let's, let's try to run through them pretty quickly. First, we are to not be slothful in our zeal, but fervent in spirit. Again, this is a, a stark contrast that he gives. We're not to be lazy or, or um, slothful in our eagerness for the Lord, but instead we're to be fervent. And the word there literally means to burn hot. We're to burn hot with a spirit of service. We're to serve the Lord in, a, in, a, in an eagerness and a desire that burns hot, that burns on, uh, regardless of how long we have done it. Second, we are to rejoice in hope. We're to have an attitude of cheerfulness in the hope of our salvation. Now, it's been said many times and in many different ways, but I think it's, and it's become kind of cliche to say this, but I'm going to say it nonetheless because it bears testifying to again. Christians can be some of the most mullygrub people you have ever met, right? People can be some of the most negative, uh, or Christians can be some of the most negative, most downhearted, most, uh, uh, um, you know, mullygrub type of people you will ever meet. And there are two places where I found that this is most apparent. Walmart and Facebook. Right? If you meet another Christian, a brother or sister in Christ in Walmart, and you can manage to get them to speak to you, most of the time they will act like they somebody has just shot their dog. You know, they would be downhearted. No, no, Walmart's not the most inviting place to be. Or the grocery store in any case is not the most inviting place to be. But we act like we are just chewing on nails when we go when you see somebody in Walmart or out in the in public and you try to speak to them and when you you I think we run around Walmart and we grab what we need and we're already mad because we're having to go through that self checkout and man why can't they employ enough people to do checkout and they never have enough people if they do have somebody at the checkout and you're having to wait in line and instead of living in joy and, and being grateful for the things that you have and being grateful for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, we look downhearted and uh, negatively towards other people and we look grumpy and tired and, and, uh, and, and we don't look inviting or like we're rejoicing in the hope of Christ. And if we aren't doing that in Walmart, we're giving someone what's for on social media. So we post memes that poke fun at our political opponents. We bemoan the state of our country and cry about how everything has gone to pot. And you rarely see 
Christians proclaiming the wonders of Christ on Facebook. You rarely see a Christian posting a beautiful piece of art or marveling at a sunset or extolling the virtues of someone else or just saying thank you to someone else on Facebook for what they did for you this week. Brothers and sisters, we are to rejoice in the salvation that we have. We're to rejoice in the hope of that salvation, regardless of what circumstances we are in, regardless of where our country's going, regardless of how hard it is to find things in Walmart. We're to rejoice. Why on earth would the world want to join us in faith in Jesus Christ if we act like there's no joy in this hope that we've been given in Him? We should be a people that rejoice even in hard circumstances. And the last attitudes, last two attitudes that we have are are dealing with that very thing. So Paul goes on to say that we should be patient in tribulation and we should be constant in prayer. So even when things are tough, even when the world hates us, even though things aren't going our way, even though we're having to persevere in this life, we should exhibit patience in our lives. And we should do that, the way we do that, is to be constant in prayer. To always be praying for patience and for wisdom and for joy and for all of the things that we are called to do. The last command Paul gives for living with other believers is is a twofold command about our actions. And both of these commands deal with the same thing. They deal with generosity. We are first to contribute to the needs of the saints. We're to be generous with our money to support other believers in their times of need, to support missions, to support this church. We're to give generously. But second, we are to be generous in our hospitality. Now, some of y'all grew up in an age in which hospitality was expected. But I guarantee you, this current generation, my generation and below, we really don't know what it is to be hospitable. And that is sad. It's sad that we don't know how to serve others with our goods and our blessings that we have. There are other ways to give. The way we typically think of generosity is just with money. You know, give your money and I'm done with you. But actually, the Bible talks more about the generosity of hospitality than it does about the generosity of giving of your money. You can take... The things that you have and the talents you have, the gifts you have, and you can be generous to others with those things that you have. And by doing that, you are expressing hospitality. You see, you have more to give than just your money. You can be hospitable by having a new member over for a cup of coffee or just stopping by to see, check on someone who's not been to church in a while, or to uh, take a, a neighbor a, a good or a, a meal that's been in surgery or been through a birth or whatever it might be. Or you can uh, help a neighbor plant a, a garden, or you can drive with that neighbor for 23 hours, right, Seth, uh, <laughs> to North Carolina. You can be hospitable to people without ever giving them a dime. You can be good to people just in the way that you care for them. 
So we've seen how we're to live with other believers. So let's, in the little bit of time we have left, let's consider the principles for how we're to live with outsiders from verses 14 through 21. So again, Paul puts these principles into the categories of affections, attitudes, and actions. First, in verses 14 through 15, he gives us commands dealing with our affections towards outsiders. We're to bless those who persecute us. And this execute, uh, this echoes, I'm sorry, the, the uh, commands of Christ in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, where he says that we're to love our enemies and we're to do good to those who would do us harm. Second, we're to sympathize with others. We're to rejoice or weep with those who are in the plight that they're in. So, you know, it's so easy to see someone who is in a difficult situation and to look at them and think, well, you know, if you hadn't done X or Y, you wouldn't be in that mess. But we're not called to judge. We're called to have compassion. We're to recognize loss and we're to weep for it. Even if that person is our enemy, if they lose their child or they lose their grandmother or they lose their job, we're to have compassion on them and to weep with those who weep. In a similar sense, we're to rejoice with those who have successes. So if we're to recognize that success, even if it's our enemy, if they get a new job or they have a success in their life, we're to rejoice with them because we love them in spite of their animosity towards us. So next we see the commands for our attitudes in verses 16 through 18. To start, Paul directs us to live in harmony. And he echoes that same idea in verse 18 when he says that as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So Christian, I want you to hear me on this. Hear me very plainly. Because this is a major problem that we have in the church today. You are not called to right every wrong that has ever happened in this country. You are not called to fix things that you cannot in any reasonable way fix. And you're not called to fix every problem or correct every falsehood. One of the worst things that has happened to our country, or two things that have happened to our country, and as a result have happened to Christians in our country, are the 24-hour news cycle and the zero-sum game that we are in in politics these days. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. Turn Fox News or CNN off. Stop watching it. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it's three minutes worth of news. That's all they report during the day. Watch it for three minutes at the top of the hour and then turn the junk off. Because I have watched men and women sit in front of that TV for hours on end in a day. And you know what comes out of their mouth as a result is the negativity they see on that TV screen. And so what it produces in our hearts is a bitterness that doesn't even need to be there because what does Texas have to do with Alabama? 
What does some law in a school district in Texas have to do with me here in Butler County, Alabama? It doesn't have anything. I can't do anything about it. Why should I care what goes on in New York City? Because what I should be concerned with is what's happening in my family. But you know what happens? Instead of doing what we can about the things we can do something about, we mother grub about what's going on in Washington, D.C. or New York while our kids are not being discipled, while we're not raising them in weekly devotions, and while we're watching our grown kids get divorced and, and turn away from the Lord, and we're watching the way that the world is going, and it's all happening under our nose, but we're fussing about Fox News, what's going on in Fox News, rather than dealing with the things right in front of us. So turn it off. Listen to your news on the radio. Get, get a subscription to a newspaper. Read it. Throw it away. Put it in your garden. Do what you're going to do with it. But forget about it after you read that newspaper or listen to that 30-minute program. And go on with your day and bless somebody's life rather than living in the negativity of things you can't control. And along with that is what I just said about the zero-sum game of politics. You know, I recognize both sides do this, and we say this all the time, but it is, I hear it come out of Christians' mouths more than I do anybody else because I'm around Christians, so I'll just say it to you who are in this congregation. When we say things like, the Democrats are out to destroy our country, you know what you're saying when you say that? You're saying that under no circumstances can I ever deal with someone who votes Democrat. Under no circumstances can I ever find commonality with and work with someone who is not of the political persuasion that I am. And guess what? That may, means that you can't work with about 50% of the people that you run into on any given day. If you make the politics of this country a zero-sum game, then it means that the people that disagree with you politically on any one given issue are an enemy that needs to be destroyed, not a friend and a neighbor that you need to find a way to work with. But Paul tells us here to, as far as it is able with us, to live peaceably with all men. Now, Paul is saying that about Roman soldiers and, and slave owners and uh, merchants who were ready to take every bit of your money and tax collectors that grafted off of the top of the taxes that they charged. He was saying that about people that we could not abide in our political system today. But he was saying that we're to live at peace with everyone that we can, as far as it is able with us to live at peace with all men. This also means that we need to learn to communicate our values in a way that an outsider can understand and will hear. And by that I mean we should be ready and willing to quote scripture, don't get me wrong. But we also need to have thought about where we stand on issues well enough to be able to communicate it in a, in a sense of common sense and natural law as well. Because it is true that the Bible forbids things like abortion or uh, 
you know, uh, drunkenness or, or issues with drugs and things like that. But it, uh, it is also common sense to communicate those things and to say, look, if you, if you kill a baby, how can you value, can you say that you value life? How can you say that you value human life if you're willing to get rid of it at its most vulnerable point? We need to be ready and willing to argue where people will hear us, not just throwing scripture at them and expecting them to understand it when they have no background to understand it with. Finally, Paul commands us in our actions in verses 19 through 21. He directs us to do nothing when it comes to our vengeance. That God will be the one who avenges us and we need to be patient and wait on him. And beyond that, we are to overcome evil with good. As believers, we're not called to uh, correct the systems of this world. We're called to live faithfully as salt and light. We're called to bring flavor to a world that is bitter and sour. We're called to preserve this world with our influence. We're called to do little acts of good. And now I know sometimes it seems like the good that we do really has no lasting value. You know, we give food to a homeless guy or we, we uh, donate to a, 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 a poverty center or we, we find a way to help in one way or the other. We loan money to a guy that's down on his luck. And you may think when you do that, well, they're just going to go right back to that same situation tomorrow. But the help you offer is good, regardless of what that person ends up doing with it. And that good will last. So everyone is, uh, uh, everyone deals with, uh, I'm sorry, lost my place there. Let me start. <laughs> uh, even if that person never changes, even if he never considers what you've done for him, even if he never comes to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of your, your gift or your generosity, at the same time, the good that you did in loving your neighbor is what God has called you to do. And so you should be willing to do it regardless of the outcome because God has not called you to produce an outcome. He's called you to be soft and light. He's called you to do good in this world. So may we leave this place ready to be that salt and light. May we leave this place ready to serve God and sacrifice to others because we recognize the light of the gospel is in our hearts and we are called to carry that out in very simple and basic ways in this community and in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the simple commands of Paul that direct us in, in specific ways in our lives and our attitudes, our affections and our actions. Lord, I pray that we would go from this place ready to serve you as you have called us to. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.